Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and 2, and chapter 12, 13 and 14. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Thank you, Rhymes. Well, good morning, everybody. And um, like I said last week, uh, welcome to my midlife crisis uh, that you get to eavesdrop in on for about three months or so uh, as we explore the book of Ecclesiastes. We're calling this new series uh, Ecclesiastes Questions and Answers in Our Search for Meaning. And, um, you know, the, the overarching theme of the book is everything is meaningless, everything is vapor, everything is vanity. So, so welcome to church. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a unique book. If the Bible were a party, Ecclesiastes uh, would be the party pooper. And, um, you know, some of you may uh, be familiar with uh, the Saturday Night Live uh, skit that happens uh, quite frequently called Debbie Downer. And uh, it's almost always in a partying environment, a festive environment, or a dinner party, or something like that. And somebody will say something positive or share an exciting piece of news. And Debbie Downer will interject into the conversation and give the dark side, glass half empty version of whatever positive thing somebody else just said. And then there's this sound that follows every time that Debbie Downer speaks. Wah, wah. And we can look at Ecclesiastes and see a whole lot of wah, wah. Even though King Solomon, and by the way, we don't know for sure if King Solomon wrote this, uh, even though it is written in his voice, it is written from his perspective, uh, you know, scholars debate whether or not he or somebody else wrote it, but it is a Solomonic way of thinking and seeing the world, and so we're going to approach it from that perspective. And the thing about King Solomon is that he was killing it. In every way, he was killing it. He was the wisest person in the world. He was the richest person in the world. He was getting all the sex that he wanted. He was famous. And his concluding words to this life are vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. And so, I've I've been diving into this this text for personal reasons as well as just to hopefully serve you as best I can as I, as I open up this book with you for the next few months. Um, one of the things along the road that I've discovered is that, that while Ecclesiastes is, is, is brutally honest, uh, it's all also fiercely hopeful. Um, you know, Brandy Carlisle sings this song. She's, she's uh, one of the singer-songwriters I really appreciate a lot. And uh, it's called The Eye. And in the chorus of that song, uh, she says these words, you can dance in a hurricane, 
but only if you're standing in the eye. You can dance there, even in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. In other words, when you're confronted with the harsh realities of life, if you don't look away and try to distract yourself away from the things that the way things really are, and you look the hurricane square in the eye, you actually might find a dance floor there inviting you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so, since it's a new year, I'm going to spare you uh, three full points and just give you two today to get us all uh, sort of easing into the new year. And those two points are these. Get real and don't be a Debbie Downer. So, get real. The strength of Ecclesiastes is its raw, unrestrained honesty. Uh, the American novelist Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, um, says that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books. Verse 2 summarizes really the whole book concerning what the writer calls life under the sun, which is the life that we live in a fallen world, life that happens you know, over that course, or over, over that, that segment of history that lands squarely between the time when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and the curse was implemented on every person, place, and thing, between that time and the time that Jesus will one day return and, and inaugurate the new heaven and new earth where everything sad will come untrue, where everything broken will be healed, where everything jacked up and messed up will be restored. We live in the in-between time where the curse is still a force. And, and, and about that time in history, life under the sun, the writer says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This word all suggests that there's not a single square inch in the whole universe, no person, no place, no thing that goes unaffected by this pronouncement. And the word vanity uh, comes from a Hebrew word which literally means vapor. So, it was 14 degrees this morning, and when I got out of my car uh, to come in uh, to do the, you know, kind of last touches on the sermon, uh, I exhaled and I saw my breath. But in just a split second, what I saw vaporized and, 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 and disappeared, and it was, it, was a, it, was as, it was gone as soon as it was there, the vapor of my breath. You're walking on a beach and you leave a footprint. It's only a matter of seconds before the tide rolls over that footprint and the footprint disappears. What the writer is saying is that all of life is a lot like that. Every person, every place, everything, every good thing that this life has to offer has a limited shelf life. It's fleeting. It's weakening. It's anticipating letdown. It's anticipating anticlimax. And, and uh, in, in the first two chapters, which we'll be covering in the next, next few weeks, um, the writer highlights some things that were uh, major positive features in the life of King Solomon in particular. One was wisdom. And the takeaway from all of this wisdom that Solomon had accrued, the, the, the wisdom that led to the writing of the book of Proverbs, and maybe this book as well, some of the world's greatest wisdom, the conclusion of the matter is, the more you know, the more heavy your heart is going to be. 
The more you stare reality and the truth about life and the world and the universe square in the eye, the more you look into the eye of the hurricane, the more heavy your experience of life is going to be. And then there's pleasure. You know, when Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a section there where He he refers to Solomon, and He talks about Solomon and all of his splendor. You know, Solomon lived in uh, the equivalent of a palace, something, you know, in his day that, that, that would be comparable to Buckingham Palace, something that would make the greatest, you know, largest, most opulent mansion in Belmede look like a hut in comparison. He was accustomed to fine dining. He says that he, 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 he denied himself no pleasure and no luxury. He had, he had women. Uh, he had everything that the flesh desires and chases after for happiness and satisfaction. And his conclusion there is, is this all there is? And then his work, his legacy, you know, again, he, he passed down all of this wisdom. He had all of this money and all of this success and all of this stuff. And the dream that his father David had once had of, of, of building this beautiful, glorious temple in honor of Yahweh, in, in honor of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David was denied that opportunity, but, but Solomon was the one who was given the opportunity to build that temple. His takeaway from all of this legacy is it's all going to be forgotten and passed on to somebody else, and who knows if they'll steward it well or poorly. You know, I was talking to uh, some folks who went to London uh, not too long ago for a visit, and uh, part of uh, what they were wanting to see on their tour of London was the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was where uh, the, the, the greatest, arguably the greatest preacher of all time outside of the Bible, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, was minister for a number of years. And they couldn't find the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and so they started asking around as they were walking on the streets, you know, can you point us to the Metropolitan Tabernacle? Uh, you know, it's where Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to preach. And, and the answer that they were getting one person after another is, who is Charles Haddon Spurgeon? You know, right under their noses, even the memory of the greatest preacher that London has ever known, vaporized. And so really the message here, at least the, the introductory message to Ecclesiastes is, wipe that smile off your face and get real. But there's a positive side to wiping the smile off of your face because negative emotions are just as much of God as positive happy ones. Did you know that? And the absence of negative emotion, the absence of lament, grief, tears, anger, etc., the absence of these emotions expressed reveals either a very, very sheltered life or a person who is living in denial. Or another way to put it is a dishonest person. It's also morally problematic. To, to, to completely resist negative emotion and the expression thereof. Scripture, the Bible actually, commands anger. Ecclesi- or, I'm sorry, Ephesians 
chapter 4, verse 26, references back to Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, and the literal translation from both the Hebrew and the Greek is not, in your anger, don't sin. The literal translation is an imperative. It's a command. Be angry, and yet sin not. And so, there's a sense in which it's a sin not to ever get angry, not to, ever, to shove those negative emotions down when they come. There's an actual moral problem at play there, or the absence of tears when, when the Bible itself in Romans 12 said, Christians of all people must enter into to the experience of Jesus weeping whenever your neighbor is weeping. You must weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. You know, we look at the Psalms, the songs of God. They're loaded with lament along with every other aspect of the full range of human emotion. There's joy, there's sorrow, there's, there's laughter, there's lament, there's happiness, there's sadness, and everything in between. And in the Psalms, what we have is, is a number of things, including complaint, dissatisfaction, Lament, anguish, anger, protest. Here are a few direct quotations from the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Out of the depths I pour out my complaint to you, O God. I tell of my trouble. There is no refuge for me. No one cares. I'm brought low. I'm in prison. Why have you forsaken me? You know, Rolling Stone magazine came out with an article featuring the top 50 songs of all time. And on that list of top, the top 50 songs of all time, only one of those songs was a song of lament. It was the Tracks of My Tears by Smokey Robinson. But everything else was positive, happy clappy, and so on. A very imbalanced list, actually, if we're talking about the the full range of human emotion, it was almost the opposite of what the Psalms give to us. Because we want to deny and distract ourselves from these hard realities rather than leaning uh, into them. You know, Kevin Twitt, who, uh, by the way, the, the group that, that Kevin founded, uh, Indelible Grace, is, is responsible for the, the music around uh, I Ask the Lord, which, which Olivia and Jesse and the team beautifully sang for us uh, during the offertory. And so, you see Kevin or Wendy in the hallways. I don't know if you're here, Kevin and Wendy, but, you know, give them thanks for their good work. One of the, one of the wonderful contributions of the ancient hymns is their honesty, uh, which is one of the wonderful contributions of, of, of Kevin and his movement. Uh, you know, they're all about sort of resurrecting the, the, the ancient hymns into to modern worship. And one of the things that Kevin will say is it's a very, very wrong thing to do to, to force our people in congregations to sing in a dishonest way where everything is only in a major key and never in a minor key and where everything is always positive, happy, clappy, and, and, and never dealing with the lament and grief and sorrow and sickness that people are facing every day. See, the Bible gives us a release valve. The Bible tells us that glass half empty is just as virtuous as glass half full as a perspective. Get real, in other words. You know, some of you are, are really into the Enneagram. It's, it you know, features nine different personalities, nine different aspects of the image of God that are, that are put into people through, uh, you know, the, the, the prism of personality, right? And in America, everybody wants to be a seven because the seven 
is the life of the party. The seven is the one that we all want to be around, and, 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 and they lead us to, to places that, that involve fun and laughter and levity, which is awesome. It's an amazing aspect of the image of God, but if we're not careful, if we lean so hard in that direction, we will forget how much we all need the dissatisfaction of the perfectionistic one or the angst of the four or the pushback and confrontation of the eight. All are necessary. Negative emotion is actually a completely necessary emotion if there's going to be any healing that happens to the sorrows and the injustices that are in the world. You know, we celebrate and commemorate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. this weekend as we do every year. Civil rights movement never would have happened had people not gotten angry and sad about the state of things. You know, Bill Gates has given millions of his fortune to, to tackle illnesses and, and, and seek cures to illnesses like HIV and malaria and polio. And, and recently he gave, uh, which I'm personally thankful for, uh, 50, uh, $50 million uh, to try to beat Alzheimer's. Silicon Valley of healthcare, folks, would not exist if somebody along the way didn't get angry or sad about illness and the way that it violates the way things are meant to be, the way it steals paradise from us. You know, all the confrontation and exposure of, of men exploiting their power in the workplace behind closed doors, none of this accountability would be happening now if somebody didn't get angry and sad along the way, there would still be trouble in paradise. Do you remember when God looked into paradise and He said there's trouble even in paradise because it's not good for the man to be alone? There would have been no Eve given to Adam had God not get, gotten angry and sad about paradise. And there may be John Cougar and John Deere, but there would be no John 3.16. Had God Himself not gotten angry and sad about the state of things. God so loved because God was so angry and sad. Love is always associated with a form of hatred, and hatred is always associated with a form of love. And because of the great love with which God loved us, He hated the condition that we've been left in since the fall in the garden and the curse. See? Leonard Cohen, it turns out, was right. There is a crack in everything, but that is how the light gets in. The negative emotion exposes the crack, and that's how the light gets in. Without diagnosis, there is no path or motivation toward a cure. So get real. Embracing negative emotion, as Ecclesiastes reminds us, as the party pooper reminds us, life isn't just a party, folks. It's not. At least not under the sun, it's not. Embracing negative emotion is necessary in order to be fully alive as a human being and in order to be a hopeful participant in the mission of God. And so, so the second thought is don't be a Debbie Downer. You know, how hard things are does not negate how great thou art. 
It doesn't cancel it out. They're not mutually exclusive. There is a hurricane, but if you stand in the eye and you stare it down, you'll discover there's a dance floor there because the Lord is the Lord of the dance, and He's the Lord of the dance always. Dance, dance wherever you may be, for I am the Lord of the dance, said He. You know, one thing we can appreciate about the existentialist philosophers, you know, the tradition of Camus and Sartre and Nietzsche, is we can admire their brutal honesty, we can admire their realism about the vapor, the vaporous nature of things. But what existentialism does not give us is a way out that leads to life. What existentialism gives us as the answer to what Ecclesiastes is calling out is escape and despair instead of hope. Escape. You know, Camus wrote this about beauty. He said, beauty is an unbearable thing. Beauty drives us to despair, offering us only for a minute the glimpse of an eternity that we would like to stretch out over the whole of time. In other words, you go to an art museum, you go to a, a, you know, a, a, a breathtaking film or a concert, uh, and you do it to escape reality, or as Billy Joel said, to forget about life for a while. But eventually it's over. The curtain closes, and you're back to the vapor. So, a temporary, relatively dishonest escape uh, existentialism offers us, or despair. You know, Nietzsche said this, you know, if, if, essentially, if Ecclesiastes is true, if everything is vapor, if everything is meaningless, as, as, as these very realistic about hard things in life philosophers concluded, then the only logical conclusion is suicide. And there is a trail of artists throughout history who listened to that advice and followed through. Ernest Hemingway or the brilliant fashion designer Alexander McQueen, or, or the brilliant painter Mark Rothko, or uh, the brilliant grunge singer Kurt Cobain. You know, even Pascal said, life is not worth living if all one knows of earthly pleasure are brief moments of satisfaction surrounded by a lifetime of boredom and frustration. But is that all we know? It's not all we know. And that's why Pascal, just like Solomon, would land in a different place than Nietzsche, Camus, Sartre, etc. The end of the matter, Solomon says, is fear God and keep His commands. Jesus' paraphrase was, of this was, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't, don't anxiously strive after all the things the pagans do. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you as well. You know, Dr. King, for instance, he leveraged the negative emotion, the, the, the tears, the sorrow, the anger about injustice. He leveraged that not to a place of cynicism and, and retaliation and unforgiveness and resentment. Here's how he leveraged it. Direct quotes. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so, in response to the negative emotion, in response to the, the Enneagram 1, 4, or 8 uh, in him or in others around him, his response was, I have a dream. I have a dream of a better, more just, more life-giving, 
world, characterized by inequality that honors the dignity of God that is in every man, woman, and child in the image of God. No cynicism, no retreat, chase the dream for a better world because sometimes the light gets in that crack. Sometimes the needle does move forward when you engage. But what if the efforts fail? What if the efforts fail? What if, what if we keep pressing into the darkness, confronting the darkness, and the efforts fail? What if I'm a pharmaceutical researcher and I spend my entire career working for an answer and I never find one? Is my life a wasted life? Only if you believe that life under the sun is the only life that there is. Then your only answer is, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Consider with me Jesus' relationship with wine for a second. There's a table full of wine underneath my nose right now that each of you will approach in a moment. And on that table, what are we remembering as we taste the sweet bitterness of the wine? We're remembering His death. We're remembering injustice perpetrated. We're remembering wrath instituted. We are remembering death fulfilled of the one and only person in the history of the universe who had virtue, who had perfect, pure virtue. And yet, while the wine may represent the cup of God's wrath and the fury of injustice, on the one hand, on the other, wine was also that which Jesus used to declare His identity and His mission in His first public miracle, turning water into wine and and thereby turning a good party into a fabulous party. The movie Titanic gives us some instruction here. Why, even if you don't believe in God, Do these scenes resonate with you? The ship is sinking, and yet there's a man organizing things on the shelf, even still, polishing the brass, as it were. And and even though the ship is sinking, the string quartet gets together and says, well, the only sensible response to a sinking ship is to play beautiful music, so let's hit it, boys. Why does that resonate? with us. Why does it resonate with us that Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy thanked God for the fleas that infested the little room where they were detained by Nazi guards in the Holocaust, during the Holocaust? Why would they come to thank God for the fleas? Because it was the fleas that kept the officers from coming into the room and checking on things. You can dance in the hurricane if you're standing in the eye. Anne Voskamp, in her book, One Thousand Gifts, Dare to Live Fully Right Where You Are, says, I want to see beauty in the ugly, in the sink, in the suffering, in the daily, in all the days before I die. Or as chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes will tell us, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power should enjoy them. This is the gift of God. So out of both sides of his mouth, he speaks. It's all meaningless. Enjoy it all. Embrace it all. Is he being contradictory or is he being fiercely consistent? Because 
The good things in life are actually not an escape from reality. Actually, the good things in life are ultimate reality. They are representative of the paradise that was once lost and the paradise that will be regained in the new, new heaven and new earth when Jesus comes again resurrected in power. So, at the Lord's Supper this morning, I was serving uh, with an elder, and one group came to, the, to our table, and, and, and it, was a, it was a man who's suffering uh, from, from ALS. You know, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, the outer body is wasting away. Those little pieces of, of bread, it, 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 he, he needs both of his hands to get the bread into his mouth, and he's shaking the whole time. And this elder leans over to me. I said, I freaking hate ALS. He's a doctor. Then another person comes up who's struggling with a very violent form of cancer, and, and he loses his balance, and he falls, and we have to disassemble our table so people can assist him to get to a place of safety and a place of prayer. But even in that moment, he's taking the bread, and, and he's taking the cup, believing, and putting it in his mouth, and chewing it up, and swallowing it down as if to say, to hell with you, sickness, to hell with you, suffering and sorrow, to hell with you, Satan. You'll see, and it is well with my soul, in a couple of moments, we do not capitalize the name Satan because Satan is finished for because of what goes on at this table, what went on to, to create this table, and what will go on to fulfill what's at this table. As the Apostle Paul would say in the face of his own being afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, death at work in him, the outer man wasting away, he would say this, all these things in comparison to the resurrected glory that awaits all who trust in Christ in, in days ahead, even these treacherous, disastrous Horrific things are like a mosquito bite. Light and momentary afflictions, Paul says, in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits us all in Christ. You can dance in the hurricane, but only when you're standing in the eye. But what a great dance it can be when the Lyrics are, O oh Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for negative emotions. Thank you for dissatisfied angst-ridden, confrontational personality attributes. Jesus carried them all. Thank you also for life of the party personality attributes that were also held by the Lord of the dance, anticipating His own death, anticipating the cup of His own wrath poured upon him so it would be directed away from us. He turns water into wine for celebration. 
setting a table for us in the presence of His enemies and ours. In the valley of the shadow of death, so that we can fear no evil. Thanks be to God. Amen.